Let's go ahead and jump into this week's teaching in Mark. So one of my, like my wife's, my wife has lots of great qualities, but one of her most enduring quality is her patience and just putting up with me. Uh, specifically in the area of driving, and I'm going to speak to you men in this room because I think it, maybe you resonate with this. I don't know if you know this or not, but I was born with an unusually keen sense of direction. Uh, my wife has not fully appreciated that yet to this point. Uh, I have this belief that no matter where I'm going, I know the fastest, quickest way to get there, and I really don't care what Google or Apple has to say about it, right? So I just have this confidence in myself. Misplaced, yes, but I, it's still there. And so that can get me in some trouble. Maybe you've gotten yourself in some trouble. I remember one particular instance where our cell phones died and we were in the kills of Kentucky, just at night. And look, I'm honest, I just trusted it, right? <laughs> Obviously I'm here today, it worked out. Uh, but I just have this belief that I know what I'm doing. And my wife would tell you that I am confident always, yes. And, but she would also say he's right sometimes. Uh, so just some things that I have to work through. But I, I know this, I'm not the only one in this room that likes to kind of create their own path, that likes to beat their own, to their own drum. I know that I'm not the only one that shares with that. This actually is something that we have developed and created within this culture quite well. We've encouraged this kind of self-reliance for centuries. Uh, if we look back into this famous poem by William Ernest Henley, uh, a poem called Invictus, the end of that poem, it says, is, it says this, it doesn't matter how straight the gate, how, uh, how, <laughs> how charged with punishments the, the scroll, I am the master of my own fate, I am the captain of my own self. And so this is kind of this this whole depiction of our culture saying that I control my own destiny. And it, it has been that way for eons. You could even argue that it's been that way since the fall of man, that we have chosen our way rather than God's. But we certainly have began more and more to celebrate this factor that what is right for the individual is what's best in their thought. Whatever feels right, whatever feels important to you, that's what you should do. And the predominant voices of our culture are ones that feed into this. If we look at some of the predominant voices, we, you know, somebody like Oprah Winfrey, uh, Winfrey, it's not Winfrey, uh, she says this, I, I certainly had no idea that being your authentic self could get you as rich as I have become. If I had known that, I would have tried a lot earlier. And so look, just be authentic self. There's some money in it for you. Just be true to yourself. There may be some riches for you down the line. Uh, the artist Kesha. Kesha, and I know that I don't have a dollar sign in that, youngins, that there should be. Kesha said, be yourself unapologetically. Like, just do what you do and don't apologize for it. And then the great modern philosopher, Cardi B, she writes this. I used to worry a lot. I still worry a lot but not about the things that I used to worry about because my younger self, I, I didn't regret anything great that I ever did. I was happy and I was free and I was living it up. So listen, no regrets, right? Living it up, being free, be who you are. And so these are 
the predominant voices. Maybe there's probably 50% in you in here that have no idea who the people that I just walked through, maybe Oprah, are. But these are predominant voices in our culture, particularly engaging our youth to say, look, it's about you. Follow your dreams, follow your hearts. Whatever you feel, follow that. No regrets, do what you please. This is where we live. And it has not happened without effect on us. There is an effect that is established because of this. Whether you want to argue with me that that effect is good or bad, that's a different discussion. But there has been an effect on our culture because of this philosophy. We have all, in some ways, maybe not all of us, but many of us have come to celebrate us as our own personal gods. We are the ones that make the stipulations about our life. We know what's best for us. And so what's worrisome in that is that we all are broken. Maybe we can't see it sometimes. Maybe this is your first time even hearing that. And so I would say, friends, you have to understand this. The word of God would say this to you, that you have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. That there is no one that can understand the human heart. It is deceitful above our understanding. We are broken. And because we are broken, we have massive vulnerabilities and weaknesses in our life. We have massive amounts of vulnerabilities and weaknesses in life. And it's because of those weaknesses and vulnerabilities that this culture can make prey of us. They help us believe because of those weaknesses and vulnerabilities. They deceive us into believing that what is good for us is actually bad for us. And what is bad for us is actually good for us. And because we, in a sense, have begun to trust ourselves above all things, we begin to, like, isolate ourselves increasingly from culture. Do you know this is a weird statistic? There are more single households today than in any other time in the world. There are more people that are just living by themselves. And that's, nothing's wrong with that, but it's, notice we're increasing. We're isolating ourselves. And, and, and so we just begin to isolate ourselves from a world that says, and we say, they just don't know me. And, and we begin this process of saying, if, if, maybe you've said this, I've said this. If everybody would just get on the same page as me, if they would see the world and do what I wanted them to do, man, wouldn't this be a great place? I would have less problems. That's so arrogant. It's so arrogant of us to say this. But if we're honest, that tends to be our most natural internal thought. If they could just be like me in this situation. That's our pervasive thought. And so inside of this movement towards isolation, what that is like because of our brokenness, it is if we are pouring gas on the fire on all of our vulnerabilities and all of our weaknesses, and we are coming, becoming more readily deceived and blinded of our own self. And so what Mark is going to do in us today is push on us something hopefully a little different. I don't know if I speak for you, but I speak for myself that sometimes I feel that there is a battle that wages within myself of wanting to set my own path, do my own way, follow my own heart, and then this, this idea of surrender to the Lord. And so these are these competing desires where I want to give everything that I have. I want to sell out for the Lord, but yet my own personal comfort and needs 
battle against those things. And so I think Mark has some great words for us. And so just, let's just establish this before we get started. Ha, has God wired you uniquely? Yes. Some of you more than others, let me tell you. Does he love the individual? Yes. Should we celebrate and love what makes us unique? Yes. Are you the answer to your problems and to your life? No. Are you the best authority to guide your life? No. You're not. The whole reason Christ came was to rescue you. Not from some person, but from yourself. Christ came here to save you from yourself. We have all chosen our own way rather than God's. And so look, if we as created beings were so good at this life, we would have never needed Christ. Christ would have not even needed to come. But because we are broken with massive amounts of vulnerabilities and weaknesses, the Lord came and he rescued us. He forgave our sin. He took on the wrath of God for us. He is the one that gets to speak into the authority of our life instead of pursuing our own thoughts and our own mind. And so, so far as we've walked through the gospel of Mark, what we have noticed is that God and Jesus is trying to get people's attention. He has been doing some fascinating and fabulous things, calming seas, healing people. He has been speaking words of enlightenment and wisdom. People's lives are being changed by Jesus. He's providing for them a better life. He's, in some ways, he's healing them from diseases. He's bettering them. He's giving them what they want. And he is doing that because God wants people to notice Jesus, that this man is different than any person that has ever come in the history of the world. He has an authority that is not his own. And the, God is trying to get the attention of people so that they can take notice and begin to see in Jesus something they've never seen in another human being in the history of the world. And so Jesus is changing the game. But what we read here in Mark 8 is that Jesus is about to make it clear on his intent. He did not come here to help us live a comfortable life. He did not come here to give us our best life on earth. He didn't come here to make your life easier and more comfortable. He came here to provide a way through grace by faith to be made right by God, which is infinitely more important than your worldly happiness. And so Jesus is raising the expectation of what has happened over the first eight chapters here in Mark in the life of Jesus. He is about ready to change the standard. And so let's read what Jesus says to the crowd on that day together. Mark records this. This is really Peter's account. Mark records it. And it says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what 
can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so let's drive home some context of what's happening here. Last week, we walked through Jesus shortly before this dealing with teachings on hardness of hearts. We, we see him interacting with the Pharisees and interacting with the disciples, and we see a, a lack of perspective. They can't see hardness in their hearts towards God. And, and shortly after that, we see Jesus heal a man who is blind from birth. And then he poses a question to the disciples. He, he asks them, who in all of what I'm doing, what are they saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And the, and the disciples come back and they say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist. Others are saying that you're Elijah, the one that's sent before the, 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 the Messiah. But still yet others are saying that you're a prophet. And then Jesus flips the table and he makes the question personal like he always does. He makes questions personal. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the disciples, says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. And this if there can be a rewarding moment for a holy divine God being in the flesh, I don't think there's a whole lot of rewarding moments for him. This has to be it. That they have finally saw with their own eyes who he is. And so he goes on in this teaching to raise the bar. He shortly before that tells them, look, now that you see me, you have to understand what the Christ is about ready to do. I'm going to go suffer. I'm going to go die. I will be raised again. But this road doesn't end the way that you think it ends. I'm not going to be the hero that sits on a, a throne and you're going to reign and rule over people. This is not how it's going to end. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And Peter, the Lord loves Peter, but Peter just is upset about this. And the all-wise Peter takes the Son of God, God in flesh, aside, and he rebukes him. He's got, he's got some gusto, right? Peter does. And he, he, he just, he's upset that Jesus is going to allow himself, because that's what Jesus is saying, he's going to allow himself to be executed. And, and Jesus responds back to Peter and the disciples, the famous verse, like, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of the world and not on the things of God. I've got a mission to do here. And you are not to get in the way. And then he calls the crowd to himself and the disciples to himself. And he says, listen, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's a hard thing for Jesus to say. That's a hard thing for Jesus to say. And I, what I want you to notice in that is who Jesus asked to come over. He brings the crowds along with his disciples, and he says that command. And the reason that I want you to notice that is because there are people who believe that you can be a Christian and not endure any of the cost of being a disciple. That you can believe in all the positive attributes of God, put all the moralistic teachings of God in your life to have a better life, but not endure any of the cost of following Jesus. That you can be a Christian and not a disciple. Friends, that's an oxymoron. You cannot be a Christian if you're not a disciple. You cannot be a spectator of God. Jesus is raising the bar here. He does not want half-hearted people. He does not want half-hearted people. 
He has asked us to follow in his way, in his teaching, in his beliefs, in his life. He no longer wants spectators. He wants disciples. There will be a cost that we certainly will endure by following him. We can't be half-hearted creatures. This isn't a spectator sport any longer. And like, I don't, when I read that, like, my heart, like, sinks. Because I want to check that. Like, am I spectating you, Jesus? Or am I actively participating in losing all that I have for you and your glory? Am I in a relationship with Jesus that actually cost me something? So listen, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to figure out how to do what Jesus said to do. Disciples are, are not people who have everything under control. They are not people that have all the knowledge about all things. Disciples are simply people who are consistently revising their life and their affairs to reflect and to carry out the decision that they made to follow after Jesus, to take up, to deny. And that is hard in a culture that has trained us to pursue after our own interest and our own heart first. That is hard. This word has been abrasive on my soul this week. Even in another gospel, the disciples say to Jesus, that's hard, Lord. This is a hard command. But perspective matters. Remember, Jesus did not come here to provide you the most comfortable life in the world. That's not his aim. You are broken. We've discussed this. I am broken. You know that you're broken. You can feel it. And what that brokenness does is create a void with you that will allow yourself to follow whatever it is in your life. We all follow something. There's nobody in here that's not following something because of your brokenness. We're either following ourselves, we're following a pop icon, we're following the waves of the world, we're following our parents, or we're following Jesus. But there's no way around the fact that you're following something. We have to choose what we follow. And Jesus makes it hard here to say, yeah, I'm all about that. <laughs> Denying, taking up, sign me up for that. He's not here to create satisfying lives as we think. That's not his mission. Jesus is leading us away from the condemnation that we have in our sin. He is trying to make us whole. And there is a path that we must be on to experience that. And it just so happens that that route brings the ultimate flourishing, contentment, blessing, and fulfillment in life. But it comes with a sacrifice. And we have to be focused on that. And so let's talk about this command that Jesus gives in this first half of Mark 34. And then afterwards, he's going to give us four foundational principles for us to understand why we should obey that command. He's not just telling us like Nike, just do this, but he's going to tell us why we should do those things. And so this is the command that we remember, right? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so the goal for Jesus here is not to be this shrewd, controversial guy that's going to stand in and just say something shocking, shocking all the crowd. I want to weed out everybody. I want to see the Marines here in Christendom. It's not what he's doing. He's being honest and he's being humble about what he's about to do in his life. The Son of God has denied himself of many great privileges. He is God in flesh. And he is about to take up a cross and suffer a death that he doesn't deserve 
but he's gonna do it for us. And so from that moment on, you have to understand, from this moment in eight, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. He has accelerated his timeline to head for the cross. He is not asking you to do something that he's not willing to do himself. And so I want to look at these kind of big action words in this command. We see this word, deny, to take up his cross and to follow. And as we read that command, what, what we come away with is that following is really about us denying ourselves and taking up Jesus. Those are the two big commands. That is what following looks like, denying oneself and taking up the cross. And I think, it's, I think that, that we would have this kind of objection, like, why would I do that <laughs> for somebody else? Why would a man or a woman deny themselves for another person? Well, the reason that we do that is because we're not our own. Like, you're not your own. Like, you were bought with a price. You were purchased by the blood of Christ. You are owned. God owns you. All of you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus owns you? Or is there something modern in you that wants to rebuff that? Nobody owns me. Nobody puts baby in a corner. The transaction on the cross bought you. Not just your Sunday morning here at Life, but bought you seven days a week, 24 hours a day, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your fears was purchased by the cross, by his blood, by his raising from the dead. And so what he has asked us to do because of his purchase is to voluntarily, gladly, freely, unconditionally surrender to King Jesus to give ourselves to him, to deny ourselves and take up our crosses. That is what a disciple is. Essentially, it means to deny ourselves of our self-trust, our self-sufficiency, deny our feelings that we are able to handle ourselves in this life, deny our feelings that we can run everything to suit our own individual glories, and to instead put on the humble Christ. To put on Christ instead. That is a disciple. Now look, I th when I hear that word deny, that, that doesn't bring up good feelings in me. There's not a whole lot of positive kind of enlightenment to the word deny. Nobody wants to deny what they want. Like I have a hard time refusing Oreos, but I, I know that they're not good for me, right? Denying is not something that comes natural in the flesh. But it's exactly what Jesus has asked us to do. Deny. And he's not asking us to be a masochist. Somebody who enjoys pain. He's not asking you to live a miserable life. Remember, God has called you daughter, those of you who have, by faith who have trusted in him. He's called you son. You have great value to him. You have great worth to him. He loves you so much. You have so much worth to him that he was willing to die for you. He's not asking you to be miserable, but he purchased you. The cross is not the way of self-deprecation. 
It doesn't tell you that there's nothing good in you and doesn't beat down your heart as unlovable and unworthy. But it does ask you to be honest about where real life is found. It does ask you to be honest about where real life is found and where artificial life has been manufactured as a coping mechanism to distract you from what that real life is. Jesus always cares more about who you are than what you do. He's always going to be more concerned about your heart. And I think that when we hear this deny, this term, we, all we want to do is start creating a list in our head of like, maybe you're doing that already. Stop this, stop this, stop this, I need to stop this. Honestly, there are things that we need to stop doing, yes. Truthfully, there are things that I need to stop elevating above God. But that's not exactly what Jesus is after. He's not after your actions necessarily. If you want to see a list for you to begin to deny, there's a great list in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, the opposites of the fruits of the Spirit that God has set us free from. Envy, rage, those types of things. We should live in oppositions to those things. You should read that chapter this week and pray that God would help you deny those things in your life. Those are not what he wants from you. But he's not looking for you to make a list of things that you need to get out of your way. What Jesus would rather see instead of behavioral modification is repentance and contrition in your heart. A heart that understands your position. A heart that says, God, I'm wrong. I know that I'm fallen here. I'm broken. I've messed things up. I need you. Show me the way. Denying self and taking up the cross is really the pathway of repentance. Those two actions are what repentance is about. Denying what we feel entitled to and taking up what Christ has asked us to. And we are to do that on repeat. Deny and take up. That we see who we really are. That we have perspective on the fact that we were bought with a price. In Luke's gospel, when he records this event, he records Jesus saying that one should deny themselves and take up their cross. And he adds this word, daily. That is what this is about. It's not about you creating a list of things that you can create action lists for to get rid of your life. It's about you every day of your life saying, Lord, I need you. I'm wrong. I can't do this without you, Father. I need you to help me walk in this way. Lord, my heart wants this, but I want you more. Every day of our life, having the right perspective on who Jesus Christ is and understanding lordship. He owns you. And I know that that sounds gross in our culture, but he did it for our benefit and our good. And so denying and taking up is about a contrite heart and a heart that, that has repentance in us. Spurgeon, uh, he's the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he writes this. He says that humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. And a right estimate of oneself is to see Jesus the way that Peter saw Jesus. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Lord of my life. That is the right estimate of one's life, to understand the lordship of Christ in us. 
And so we deny and we take up our cross because he's worth it. And so what I want us to understand about taking up our cross is, is that, look, the cross, like we've domesticated this. This is like cocker spaniels in our culture. Like we have domesticated the cross. We, we, have, we have taken the offensive nature out of it. Do you understand that in the time period that Jesus was talking to the crowd that he was talking, you would have never mentioned the cross in public? It was that offensive. The Israelites, the Jewish people, would have had tens of thousands of people who hung on a cross very similar to that. You do not mention the cross because it's offensive. And I think that we, in, in, in a way, we, we just get dull to this. You know, when I go to, to the mountains, when I go to Colorado, when I see the mountains, are you not in awe? Is that not amazing? I always have this thought, do the people that live in Colorado know what they have? Does it ever just get so nonchalant, so a part of the scenery that it just all blends in and you don't understand the beauty of all of it? I think that we have become dull to the offensiveness of the cross because the offensiveness of the cross says that you can't. And that the only way that you can is through that cross. Our culture does not want to hear that. And so to take up the cross, it's not about, I got arthritis in my knee, just bearing my cross. It's not about like uh, that job at the factory, just, you know, I'm just bearing my cross. It is a voluntary choice to pick up that cross. And listen, Jesus picked up that cross and he was on his way to death. He didn't pick it up and head to McDonald's and get his McDouble. He's on his way to die. And we have to, listen, prepare ourselves to even face that fate. We have to face that fate, maybe. God, through Jesus, literally, like, what he did here by taking this cross up, like, it's, astro it's astronomical. Like he was the king of the universe. He could have rightfully come and, and, and just destroyed everything, put everybody under his thumb and made everybody suffer because we all deserve hell in some ways because we have chosen our path than God, rather than God's. But he doesn't come in that way. He takes on this cross. He humiliates himself to give us what we could never earn. And so listen, the call of the cross is to take up the cross should not be a stripped of its offensiveness to the world. It is a call to change things. Listen, it's a call to change things through vulnerability than through power. To change things through love rather than coercion. We take up our cross instead of the sword, instead of our power, because this world is already heavily invested in inequality and coercive use of force and in the fear of suffering and death. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword, but those who die by the cross will live for God. And so to take up the cross is a voluntary choice to put on the hardship of Christ, put on the humility of Christ, put on the weakness of Christ, put on the love of Christ, because we know that in the end it produces something better in us in this world and in the world to come than anything this world would ever have to offer us. And so being disciples means that we must prepare for a life that, like Jesus, 
might be full of opposition and pain and shame and even death. Because listen, with Christ, weakness, powerlessness, death, grow victory, strength, and life. Those are our weapons, not the sword. He's called us to a different way. And I guess sometimes I don't understand why as Christians, why are we still fighting? What are we fighting for? Why are we using the same rhetoric of the world to fight against the world? The battle has already been won. You, you won. Why do we need to keep, what are we fighting for? The upside down kingdom of Jesus says strength and power is defined by denial and self-crossbearing. Those are the marks of disciples. And in that upside down kingdom of Jesus, he has an up, upside down math as well. In giving his reason, these foundational, fundamental reasons for why we should obey this command, he says four different things. He says, for whoever wants to lose their life or save his life will lose it, but whoever saves his life will lose it. So in, in Jesus' realm, in his economy, losing equals saving, where in our culture, saving equals saving. But he's not. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to lose, to save. And he's not just talking, he's not talking about death, death. But I think that, that, that the, save, the effort to save ourselves, to fix our own needs, to fix our own desires, it, it's a lie. You can't do it. You can't fix yourself. You need to lose your life in Christ to save it. We've tried it. I've tried it. We hand it over to Christ. We deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and he will save us. That's his math. Lose to save, save to lose. And then he says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And so I think one of the hard things about this world is the way that these things in the world are packaged. All of the benefit, all of the pleasure in the things of this world are up front. You enter into those things, you get pleasure, you get joy, you get contentment instantly. All of it at once. The cost is later. The cost is later. In that moment, he looked really good cost is later. In that moment, it just seemed like it was just one hit. Cost was later. Jesus is honest. The cost is up front. The cost is here in following me. And what is to come after the cost is of infinitely more value and worth than anything that you could achieve by the world. He's honest with us. I think that we, in discipleship, in evangelism, have to be careful for this. Sometimes we want to package Jesus as this positive attribute that's going to bring great things into our life. That Just put the moral principles of Jesus. He wants to meet all your needs. He wants to care for you. He loves you so much. Just keep going. He's going to make your life better. But if we don't ever transfer, yes, to something different, yes, Jesus meets our needs. Yes, Jesus loves us. Yes, Jesus cares. But if you don't understand, there's a cost to following this then are we really loving people? Or do we just like the feeling that somebody is following Jesus that we had some work with? There's a cost to this. Prophets, it's nothing to gain the whole world. 
deny and take up. He says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? He says, you should follow me because you can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. And he said, whoever's going to be ashamed of me here, I'm going to be ashamed of them there. You deny me here, I'm going to deny you well. You, you should follow me. And so look, look, I know that this isn't easy. I, I have weighed this out in my heart this whole week. I know that we have been trained and equipped to fulfill all of our deepest needs and our desires by ourselves. But I'm saying to you, Jesus is saying something different. He's saying that there's a cost to this thing. We cannot be spectators in Christianity. And so what I want us to consider, what I want us to consider and think about this week is am I prepared to let it cost me something? Because look, the temperature of this world is heating up. And it is not so easy to believe all the things that the word says and live the way the, world has, the word has taught us. And honestly, that temperature is going to be too much for some of you in this room. I'm just being honest. When the persecution heats up, when the temperature heats up, the spectators will run. Jesus is saying, you've had a honeymoon here for a long time in this country. It is going to cost you something. And are you willing to sacrifice it? And not just for any self-deprecating way, but because he's better than anything that we could ever have. And so where do we begin? Repentance is not always the last word in Christianity, but it's always the first words off of Jesus' mouth. That we should deny, take up, repent, confess. I'm wrong. I can't do this. Lord, I need you. Repentance and confession are where we start. Admitting to Jesus that you need him and learning what his truth is. You know, Matthew 13 says this. Matthew 13, says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. What this verse tells to us is that the kingdom of God, the treasure that he has for us, is so worth it that we should deny and sell everything that we have, that we should give away everything that we have for something that the world could never see. It's buried. Are we willing to give to Christ what cost us? And so as we enter into a time of reflection and prayer and worship, I think that's a question that we should let fester in our hearts, to let the word of God push on us. Don't be afraid to let the word push on your hearts. I know that, that maybe we, we don't like conviction and we think we're being judged. Uh, that's not what we're trying to do here. The word is alive and it's active and it does not come back void. So today we need to focus on, Lord, what is it that you're calling to me to? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to deny? What do I need to take up, Lord? How do I need to live this life, Lord? What do I need to focus on in a way that doesn't just please me, but pleases you? And so join me as we worship and reflect on a God who loved us so much, he bought us. He bought us.